Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 are are these two passages of genealogies in the Bible. And Genesis 5 gives you from Adam to Noah. And then Genesis 10 continues with Noah. And, you know, these genealogies, a lot of times when people are, like a lot of times people will set out to just read through the entire Bible, right? But they come to the genealogy and the names are hard to pronounce. They're hard to read. Even if you're not trying to pronounce them out loud, they're hard to read. And and people, I think a lot of people tend to kind of skip over some of those things, but there's, you know, there's little, little uh, nuggets and, and gems in there. And of course, God wouldn't put the information there if it wasn't something you didn't need, right? So he says all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, and that includes the genealogies. And even the genealogies are profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. Um, the, the genealogy here in Genesis 10, you begin to have mention of, of some things that, that we, haven't, we haven't seen yet in the book of Genesis. Uh, so, for instance, I, I want you to come to, well, go to, go to verse 20 in Genesis 10. It says, these are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Um, you see, you see that uh, idea there of, of separate tongues or languages, countries, nations. Uh, but the, the narrative sections of the book of Genesis up to this point, they haven't told us how these nations came about. And it's actually going to be chapter 11 that's going to explain how that came about. But before we get there, uh, understand that Genesis 10, this genealogy, if you, these genealogies, one way they're very beneficial is that, that, uh, they, like the, the genealogy in Genesis 5 gives you a lot of years so you can kind of work out some chronology. Uh, Genesis 10 doesn't give you as much as far as the, the years go, but it shows you the, the division of these various nations. And so some of the nations that are mentioned here in Genesis 10, uh, that are descended from the sons of Noah come to be important later on in the Bible. But I, I want you to notice in uh, Genesis 10, um, verse 6, let's start in verse 6. Remember, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in general, these, these three sons, they kind of go, or their descendants, sort of go in, in three different directions. The, the descendants of Shem, if you've ever heard the term Semitic, more often you hear the term anti-Semitic, right? And, and usually when people use the term anti-Semitic, they mean anti-Jewish. But realize there's a lot more Semitic peoples than just the, the Jews. Uh, the Semitic peoples would be the peoples that are defend, de, descended here from Shem, okay? And that tends to be the, the Middle Eastern peoples and, and over into Asia. 
the descendants of Japheth, those nations, if you trace out those nations that come from Japheth, they go over more into Europe. And the descendants of Ham go down into, into Africa, okay? And, you know, there, there's always been, there's always mixing between those different groups, but in general, that's the general directions where those descendants of those three sons go. And notice in this line of Ham, so verse 6 says, the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim and Phut and Canaan. Alright, and Mizraim, for instance, that is a, a term that's used interchangeably with Egypt in the Bible. But Cush, uh, if you come down to verse 8, it says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this Nimrod is a, is really an important character in the Bible, but it, it doesn't really go, the Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail about his history. He is important because of the influence he winds up having really on the, on the trajectory of the world. Um, Nimrod, I, I don't know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to insult somebody, you called him a Nimrod. But this Nimrod is not, is not, uh, you know, it's not an insult here. Uh, he is a, a great man in the earth. You see, it talks about him being a mighty hunter. Now, be, you know, certainly in the original creation, the, the animals didn't eat each other. They ate plants. And man, you know, if you go back there in the early chapters of Genesis, God says he's given man the, the herb to eat and the fruit of the, the trees, that's what man ate. Man didn't eat the animals. After the flood, uh, God talks about putting the, the fear, he tells man that they can now eat the animals, or not to eat the blood, but he also puts a fear of man in the animals, so for their own defense, you know, they're, they're going to stay away from man, because now man's going to be trying to catch them and eat them. And um, the animals, you know, it appears that at that time, uh, the animals start to, start to eat each other as well. But man didn't eat animals before the flood. You didn't have any hunters before the flood. Uh, but here after the flood, Nimrod, what makes him a great man is it says he's a mighty hunter. And if you think about, you know, agriculture, uh, where you're going to go out and plant a crop and tend to that crop and then finally get a, get a harvest, um, you know, there's certain benefits to that in that you can bring in a big harvest all at once and, and you have storable type thing, you know, grain and, and things that you can store. But a hunter, somebody could, who could, who could just go out and kill a wild animal and bring, bring home food, you, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to wait for that. You don't have to, you don't have to tend to that crop and, and, uh, so there were some, some advantages to that. That, by the way, biblical anthropology has it just the opposite of, of what, uh, you know, secular evolutionary anthropology has. It. Uh, secular anthropology says that men were hunters and gatherers first and later developed agriculture. The Bible says, no, that's not the way it was. Adam was a husbandman in, in the earth. You had Cain tilling the ground. You had agriculture first and hunting didn't come till much later. Now, there may have been gathering, but, uh, but hunting didn't come till much later. You have agriculture long before you have hunting here in the, you know, the biblical view of anthropology. 
But uh, Nimrod is known for being this mighty hunter, and it says that he is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, when you read that, you, you may get a little bit of a wrong impression of what that means. That sounds like kind of a positive thing, right? I mean, he's a mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, the idea there is that Nimrod, either Nimrod himself or the people around Nimrod, are placing him before the Lord, as in, you know, in front of the Lord or in place of the Lord. Uh, in, in fact, Nimrod comes to be worshipped as a god. And you see it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now we're going to be talking about Babel and what happened there at Babel. But understand when you get into chapter 11 and what takes place there at Babel with the Tower of Babel, Nimrod is the, the mighty man, the, you know, the, the king or the lord that's presiding over what's going on there at Babel. Okay? And, and Nimrod, it doesn't mention here anything about Nimrod's wife, but you can, you know, you can go back into other sources regarding this history. And Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis. Okay? And Semiramis, uh, you know, later comes to be worshipped as a goddess, just as Nimrod comes to be worshipped as a god. Uh, you know, you have in different cultures, you have these same gods, but they, they're called by different names. And you have kind of a, kind of an archetypal male god and an archetypal female goddess. And, you know, so, so Nimrod, I mean, he would be pictured as, for instance, Adonis. By the way, the Greek Adonis, you know, that that name Adonis means Lord, and it, it would be related to the Hebrew term Adonai, which is a title of, of the Lord God, right? And so, so pagan peoples would take these titles of the Lord God and they would apply them to these, these other, uh, you know, other individuals that they worshipped as God. But you have Nimrod and you have Semiramis, and Semiramis becomes like the archetypal female goddess. And Nimrod and Semiramis have a son named Tammuz. Now, Tammuz is mentioned in Scripture as being an object of idolatry. Uh, it mentions the women weeping for Tammuz. Okay? And, and Tammuz, in the mythology that grew up around Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz, Tammuz comes to be viewed as being like the, like the reincarnation of Nimrod. It's, you know, he's the son of Nimrod, but he is Nimrod, and so Semiramis becomes the mother of God, right? And, and so you have this mythology that grows up around these people. Now, um, different people have, have, you know, come up with conjecture about how you could have this son that is considered to be the, the reincarnation of the father. I mean, it could be that Nimrod died while Semiramis was, was pregnant with Tammuz, and then Tammuz is born, and they say, oh, look, it's, it's Nimrod. But you have, you have uh, all this mythology around them. And, and so especially the female goddess. Uh, you know, when Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, and the, the uh, craftsmen there are worried because Paul is preaching about a, a god that doesn't need to be worshipped with men's hands and he doesn't live in a house made with hands and you have these craftsmen who make shrines and little trinkets and things and the main, the main deity that was worshipped in the city of Ephesus was Diana, the goddess Diana. And, uh, and if you remember, the, the multitude there began to, to cry out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And, and they talk about Diana and they say, 
whom all the world worshipeth. Now, all the world at that time didn't worship a goddess named Diana, but you have these different goddesses all over the world at that time by different names that all have similar characteristics. And it's it's interesting. We'll talk about the Tower of, of Babel here. But you know that if you look at ancient depictions of Diana, for instance, one of the ways that she's depicted is by wearing a crown that looks very much like a tower. And that symbolism comes down through history of uh, Nimrod, Semiramis, Tammuz. That is, a, that is a, uh, a false trinity that you often see portrayed in pagan mythology. Not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Father, Mother, Child. Okay? You, you see that even, even adopted into... Uh, like, like Roman Catholicism, there are many Roman Catholic sources that associate the Holy Spirit of God with a, a feminine gender. Alright? Now the Bible always refers to the Spirit of God as, as He, but they'll refer to the Spirit of God in a feminine gender or having feminine characteristics because then you wind up with, you know, masculine father, feminine spirit, and then the son. And, and so these things, these things back here that are going on at Babel, they influence, uh, society and culture and religion all the way down to today and, and out into the future. Okay? And, uh, you know, there's some, there's various sources that you can, you can go to that kind of delve into that. Uh, there, there is a book, uh, by Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons. Uh, where he identifies a lot of the religious practices, uh, especially of the the uh, Roman Church and the papacy, that go back here to Babel. Uh, now, you know, in some cases, Hislop has been shown to have overreached uh, in some ways, but uh, that doesn't mean he was wrong in everything that he said. But but you see here, Nimrod, he's, he's this mighty hunter before the Lord, and he's He's before the Lord in the sense of, of putting himself in the place of God. And of course, you know, that, that's originally what, what the devil wanted to do when, when he says those five I wills. Um, he doesn't say, here's one of the things that people get wrong about the devil. People think of the devil as being the opposite of God. But what did he say? I will be like the Most High. It wasn't, it's not, he, the devil doesn't want to be the exact opposite of God. He wants to be like the Most High. And so these people that are influenced by satanic doctrine down through history, they don't, they don't set themselves out to be the opposite of God. They set themselves out to be God and to be in place of God. And in fact, when you, when you get to that individual, it's called the Antichrist. Anti does not mean against in, in the sense that we think of you know, being opposite to something. Anti means being in place of something. He's the anti-Christ. He's putting himself in place of Christ. He's claiming to be Christ. Not the opposite of Christ, but the, he's claiming to be the actual Christ. Okay? And, and all of that really is just the fruition of some things that go on here at Babel. And so you see in Genesis 10 verse 10, speaking of Nimrod, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erek and Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar. Now, some of those names, uh, we see other, other places in Scripture, Babel certainly, and Babel also is the same as Babylon. All right, it, It's the same. Um, Akkadia. 
or Akkad that's mentioned there. Uh, Akkadia is, is a place that's mentioned not only in scripture, but, you know, very often in, in ancient, ancient, uh, writings and, and things. And you see this, this land of Shinar. You see in verse 11, out of that land went forth Asher. Now that Asher, you know, there's a tribe of Israel that's called Asher, but that's spelled completely different. It's a different word. That Asher is the, from which you get the, the nation Assyria, uh, a nation that is associated in Bible prophecy with the Antichrist, uh, a nation that, you know, all, all throughout the scripture is setting itself against Israel. And you have Assyria in the north and Egypt down in the south. And a lot of times Assyria and Egypt were fighting with each other and Israel's in the middle. And they, they want, you know, sometimes they would kind of try to make a league with Egypt, sometimes with Assyria. And they always wound up losing out in those deals. But you see there Asher, Assyria, and builded Nineveh. And the city Rehoboth and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. The same as a great city. Um, Mizraim, again, Mizraim is a name for Egypt. And so you see these great nations being formed here. You see in verse 15, and Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And so you have the land of Canaan that, that uh, roughly is the land of Israel. Uh, if you think of like modern day Israel, that's, that's roughly the bounds of, uh, the biblical Canaan, Sidon there, uh, which is up to the north of Israel. You see some things taking shape here in Genesis 10 with these descendants of Noah after the flood. Now, uh, it's here in Genesis 10 you begin to see these, these uh, nations, families being formed. Um, it is in... Verse 25, that it says, and unto Eber. Now, Eber, his descendants are known as Hebrews. Okay? Now, Hebrew is another one of those terms. We associate that most, most closely with Israel, but really, there would be a lot of people that are Hebrews that are not necessarily Israelites. Hebrews would be the descendants of Eber. Okay? And you see Eber, it says, uh, unto him were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. Okay, now that seems to be a reference not just to the dividing into nations, but an actual physical dividing of the earth that takes place. Uh, here here um, at that time, and his brother's name was Joktan. Okay, so, so you see there's a lot of things there in those genealogies if, if you look into it, and a lot of things that help prepare you for what is about to happen. Now, Genesis 10, the genealogy actually goes ahead a little bit, and then Genesis 11 goes back to what happened at Babel. Okay? And so in Genesis 11, verse 1, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick, brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, remember what's just taken place. You've just had this flood on the earth. 
you have, I mean, you're just talking about a, a you know, within a couple generations here of the flood. Uh, so you've had, you've had mankind decimated. I mean, you think about how natural disasters affect, you know, affect the world. I mean, you think about the, the tsunami there in, in India and Southeast Asia and there were, you know, I forget what the final number was there of people that died. It was a large number. Uh, it was it was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, that died. And and you think about the effect that that has on the world. Think about the entire human race being wiped out, except for one family, right? Um, and and these people here on the earth, they. God, God had told them to go out and replenish the earth. Now you see over and over again how God will give these instructions. Remember God told Cain, go out and be a stranger and a vagabond in the earth. And what did he do? He went and built a city. Uh, here, after the flood, he tells them, you know, go out, multiply, replenish the earth. But what they do is rather than going out and filling the earth, they, they say, let's build this tower that can be something we can all rally to and, and gather to so that we aren't scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Let's all, let's all be together. Let's all work together. Uh, when, when you see the, you know, the entire human race come together in some endeavor, watch out. I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of thing that people have these romantic notions about, right? I mean, if we could all just, just get together, if we could stop all the fighting, stop all the wars, and just get all the nations together. Just think of all the great things we could do. And yeah, we could do some great things, but those things won't wind up being in accordance with what God desires. It's going to be, when mankind does that kind of thing, um, it's, it's in rebellion to God and, and to God's will. And so God tells them, go out, you know, uh, Fill the earth, and they say, "No, let's all let's all stay together. Let's let's find some big project we can all work on together, so we stay together and we don't get spread out everywhere. We don't get scattered over the earth." And so they're going to build this tower. And you see what the what this tower is? They say, "Let us make a let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name." This isn't something that they're doing in you know, in any kind of honor or glorification of God, they're saying, let's make a name for ourselves about how great we are. We're going to build this city and we're going to build this, this great tower in the city. Um, you know, if you ever want to do an interesting study, just study cities through the Bible. And, you know, there, God has a city, right? I mean, God has a city, the, the New Jerusalem. Uh, that is the the ideal and the perfect city. The cities that men build are always centers of wickedness. They're always centers of, of sin and and evil and just just you know. I mean, I mean, you shouldn't expect any different. You take if you've got people spread out all over the countryside and you know they each have their individual sin nature, but they don't come into contact with a lot of other people. There's not a lot of of opportunity to express that sin nature, right? Uh, a hermit out in the woods somewhere. I mean, he, he may be just as sinful as he could be, but he doesn't have a lot of opportunity to express that by, by you know, mistreating other people or, or whatever. But you take a million sin natures and confine them in a city, and they can come up with all kinds of wickedness to do. And they can accomplish things in rebellion to God that one individual never could. 
And you take 10 million people and put them together in a, you know, in a nation of cities. Uh, again, they'll come up with all kinds of things to do uh, to express their sin nature. And you've got you've got those millions of sin, na- sin natures bumping up against one another. And, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of wickedness that results. These people say, no, we're not going to spread out over the earth. We're going to make a city and we're going to we're going to build this city around this tower and this tower. You see, they say, uh, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, the name of the city that they build and the tower in it is Babel and Babel means the gate of God. They're going to make a gate to God, just as Nimrod places himself before the Lord. You see, they're going to make a gate to God, just like Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. They say, we're going to, we're going to ascend into heaven by means of this tower. Now, the, the way this is usually, you know, the way you usually learn this in Sunday school class is that they were going to build a, a tower so high that it would, it would go up into heaven where, where God dwelled. I, I don't think that was what was in their mind as they were doing this. Uh, you know, not that, not that they were physically somehow going to build a, a tower into, into heaven, but rather they're building a tower that is to them going to be a means of reaching heaven. Uh, you know, these, these religious structures that ancient man built, it was on the top of that high structure that they would perform their religious rituals that were designed to get them to heaven. And, and you can see these kinds of things all over the world. You know, uh, men, men used, I mean, before they were building big structures, men just used high places, tops of mountains, tops of hills. That's where they would, that's where they would, uh, engage in their false worship, uh, often of the stars, you know, by being up there high, it made them feel like they were closer to the stars. That's where they would worship these things. Uh, then men started building artificial high places. And you don't have to go very far to, to see them. The What's considered to be the, the most important ancient archaeological site in Wisconsin is down between Madison and Milwaukee. It's, it's Aztalan State Park there. And they named it Aztalan because the, uh, there were South American people who talked about how their ancestors had come from the north, from a place called Aztalan, and the first people who found this site thought... You know, maybe that's where they had come from. But there's a, you know, there's an earth pyramid there. There was a, there was a, a, a big city there at one time. Uh, they don't really know what happened to the city. There's evidence that it was burned. But there was a city there with a wall around it, a stockade all the way around it. It's on a, on a river. And, uh, that's how the city supported itself is they, they got snails and crayfish mostly from, from that river there. And, They've, they've rebuilt the, uh, the hill. For a long time there was a farmer that was farming that land and so it got, it got, uh, uh, you know, disc and, and plowed every year and the hill started to come down. But the original people who discovered it had drawn pictures of the contours and in recent years they've taken and rebuilt it to those contours when it was, you know, when it was discovered. Um, but, there's there's these mounds all around that. There was this whole complex. And in fact, if you climb up on top of there, you can see they have stairs going up it. You can see all the different mounds and pyramids and things all the way around. On top of that pyramid is where their priest lived. And he had a hut and he, and he probably never came down from that pyramid. 
and he did rituals there to keep them safe in battle and, and make sure they had good harvests and good hunts and, and all of those things. Um, you know, that's just the same thing they're doing here. They're going to build this tower, this structure, whose top may reach unto heaven. They're going to have a, a this is a religious building that, that uh, they're going to use to try and reach into heaven. And, you know, it's, it's no accident. It's no accident, for instance, that, uh, you know, all kinds of ancient religions, they built these obelisks, right? These big towers that stick up into the, into the sky. Uh, it's no accident that one of the most common features on church buildings is to have a steeple. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, old towns that you go into, and the very first structure that you'll see sticking up above the treetops is that steeple on that church building. Um, you know, there's nothing, nothing in the Bible that says that a place where the body, body of Christ meets should have this steeple on it. Where'd they get that from? It really goes back to this stuff here, right? I mean, it goes back to, to these towers and things and, and this Tower of Babel. And, you know, as you start looking into that, you see just how much what happened here at Babel influences our world today in, in many ways that we don't, we don't even realize or don't even know about. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.